Uh, my name is Ben, and it's great to be with you, um, one of the senior staff that Matt mentioned before. Um, in our first half of the semester, we were working through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, but today we're picking up, as Kara mentioned, a new series where for the last six weeks of semester, we're looking at the book of Revelation. Now, this is actually finishing a series that we started two years ago. Uh, in 2020, we went through Revelation chapters 1 to 7 in public meeting, and then last year we did Revelation chapters 8 to 14. Uh, if you want to dig uh, deeper uh, beyond what we're doing in this series and find out more background, you can look up the UWA Christian Union podcast and you can find those talks in the archive from the last two years. But for now, what we're picking up today and doing the next five weeks is finishing the book of Revelation, doing chapters 15 to 22 over these five weeks. Now, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and it is the kind of, it's kind of infamous for being the subject of uh, end times prophecies and crazy conspiracies and uh, predictions. Uh, for example, uh, here's something I found online. This is pretty fun. Um, we looked at Revelation 12 last year, and someone looked at Revelation 12, and the, you see there's numbers and codes and star signs, and they tried to use it as this code book to predict very specific events and very specific dates around things were going to happen. Now, I wish I could say that this is a kind of unique, strange thing to find on the internet, but sadly, there are very many places on the internet where you can find things like this. Uh, Do you know that there is a rapture-ready index? Now, this website handily takes all the supposed prophecies about the end times in the Bible and gives you a live tracker in a single number to see how likely it is that the world's about to end. How useful is that? Don't know if any of you follow uh, stock market index, uh, you should add this uh, so you can follow this index as well. Now, things like, and literally he's got like uh, 60 different categories and they're each rated from one to five, like droughts, one to five, uh, floods, one to five, Russia, one to five. So things like legitimately, so Ukraine, he's like, whoa, it's, it's happening. Um, you can see here that uh, there are different numbers what the index might be. 100 and below is slow prophetic activity, 100 to 130 medium. Anything above 160 is fasten your seatbelts. Now, it's 188 at the moment. So just letting you guys know that you should be pretty worried. Although, I don't know if this is comforting or not, but uh, I found this. This tracks the index and its high and low over the past um, 25 years. And if you, here's the line 160... It's been in fasten your seatbelt mode for 24 out of the last 25 years. Either that means it's very uh, unreliable and unpredictable, or it's just really ramping up over a long time. So most of you for your whole lives have been living in strap into your seatbelts mode. Now, this is unfortunately how a lot of people read the book of Revelation. And it is actually quite unfortunate. They read it as a secret code book for predicting world events in the distant future and when the world's going to end. But for those of us who are here for the last year or two, when we went through Revelation chapters 1 to 14, we saw that it's not some code book predicting world events. It's actually a letter that it was written to Christians living at a specific time and place in around 90 AD. If you've got a physical Bible, you could flip back there to Revelation chapter 1 and see this. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, this is the standard letter form in the ancient world. It starts with the person who the letter's from and then says who it's to. John, that's who the letter's from, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. 
And then it actually goes on in Revelation to specifically name and address these seven churches living in the Roman province of Asia. Uh, it's not Asia that we think of today. Uh, it's in the, where Turkey is, modern day Turkey. Cities like Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Laodicea. These, these are real towns with real people in them who actually needed to hear this message from the Apostle John. For anyone who's in a first year small group or has been, you'd be glad to see that Colossae is there also on the list. Uh, but Colossae isn't one of the letters, uh, one of the cities that this was addressed to, but Laodicea, a close neighbour, was. Now, the key thing to notice here, and I hope the thing that you take away is, Revelation was actually written to real people living in the first century AD. And the Christians in these churches were very real people facing very real challenges. They were facing uh, persecution under the Roman Emperor Domitian, uh, probably 90 to 95 AD uh, is our uh, best guess of when this was written. Seems by far the most likely. So, so picture the situation. The Apostle John sitting there uh, on the island of Patmos. That's where he, he wrote it from. And he knows these Christians are suffering and struggling. And he thinks, what, what do these people need right now? To encourage them in the midst of their hardship and persecution by the Roman Empire. What, what do they really need right now? I know. They need a secret code book about events that are going to happen in 2,000 years' time. Of course, that's exactly what they need. They need to know when World War III is going to happen and when Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Why don't I write a secret code book for them? Now, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because that's not what the book of Revelation is. It's not a secret code book about the distant future. The word revelation simply means a revealing. And the book of Revelation is one big revealing of God's perspective of reality. It's a vision that God revealed to the Apostle John to help Christians see things from a God's eye view. And not just the distant future, but even the present, to see their present sufferings and trials and challenges the way God does. That's what the Christians being persecuted by the Roman Empire needed to see the present from a God's eye view. Because from a human perspective, their situation was looking pretty bleak. The Romans held all the cultural, political and military power and Christians were powerless and remained so for the first 300 plus years. They looked powerless, but from God's perspective, things looked very different. And it's actually these poor and powerless Christians who will be vindicated and victorious in the end through trust in the Lord Jesus. So Christians back then needed to see their lives from a God's eye view. And today Christians need that too, don't we? To see our lives in the present from God's perspective. So if you've got a Bible or handout in front of you, let's look together at Revelation chapter 15 to 16 and see what it has to show us. Revelation 15 verse 1 says this. This is John speaking. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign. Seven angels with seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who'd been victorious over the beast and its image and the number of its name. Now, Already, you can see things are getting pretty confusing, aren't they? 
Now, we've got to remember that what we're reading here is John recounting the vision that God showed him. This isn't him recording literal predictions about what's going to happen in the future. This is him recording what? What he saw. It's a vision. And notice as well, what does he describes about what he saw? What did he see? He saw a great and marvellous sign. It's another one because he's seen previous ones uh, in the book as well. And that language is really important to notice. Because the way Revelation communicates is not through literal descriptions, but through signs, through symbols, through pictures. Signs that point to real realities. It's not just, oh, the whole thing's a metaphor, so it doesn't mean anything. They are metaphorical, but they're pointing to very real things. But they're doing so metaphorically. Signs point to realities, but the signs themselves aren't the realities. You know, imagine you were on a plane and you saw a sign saying, uh, Welcome to Perth, plastered on a warehouse roof. As you're sitting there on the plane, you look down at a little warehouse and you think, Wow, Perth is a lot smaller than I expected. It's just this little warehouse. I mean, I I thought there were going to be beaches. I thought there was going to be this big city, but it's just so small. How is that Perth? But of course, the The sign is not Perth. It's pointing you to a greater reality beyond itself, isn't it? The real Perth is a city. The sign is just pointing to it. Now, in fact, it turns out that this particular sign isn't even in Perth. Um, It's in Sydney, and it was a prank uh, to freak people out to think that they'd arrived at the wrong location. A bizarre Perth sign in Sydney, which ironically is how a lot of people use the signs in Revelation as these bizarre things just to freak people out. But when you see in Revelation 15 the language of the sign that John is seeing, it means we've got to ask, what reality is the sign pointing to? Don't just think this is a prediction about there's actually going to be this weird looking sea. Think, what is the sign pointing to? And you've got to ask, how can we tell? Well, whenever you see a sign or symbol or a picture in Revelation, you've got two main options, I think, to try to figure it out. The first option is to jump straight to literal world events far removed from John's original hearers. So, for example, when you see the mark of the beast in Revelation, uh, you, could, you could jump to thinking that it refers to a literal mark that people are going to actually have implanted in their hands. So maybe it's going to be a microchip. Or when you see the beast, maybe that's referring to, oh, what's the, what's the, um, the animal that represents Russia? It's a bear. Oh, it must be referring to Russia. But as we've seen, this approach is problematic. It would be uh, meaningless to those who first received this revelation. So the second option, and spoiler alert, I'm convinced this is the right one, is to instead look to the Old Testament, to the scriptures themselves, uh, to understand the signs and what realities they point to. And this is so important because if you want to understand Revelation, you've got to understand it in light of the Old Testament. Because Revelation is referencing and alluding to the Old Testament all the time. In fact, scholars reckon that Revelation alludes to the Old Testament more times than every other book in the New Testament combined. Not just the most, but combined. So whenever you see a confusing sign in John's vision, don't jump to literal fulfillment in 21st century world events. Look at it and think, hmm, does this ring any bells from the Old Testament that will help me think through what this picture is pointing to? So think about how that applies to Revelation 15 verses 1 to 3. He sees what looks like a sea of glass glowing with fire. Now try to picture that. You've got this 
see, but it's like glass. It's kind of transparent. But, but what colour is it? It's on fire. What, what colour do you think that would... What would it look like? It's probably red, isn't it? And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the image of a red sea should ring some bells, especially some of the upper years, you guys who have been in Exodus as you go through uh, this semester. Because in Exodus, God saves Israel from slavery in Egypt by parting the Red Sea and allowing them to pass through on dry land. And when their oppressors, uh, Pharaoh and his army, who had enslaved and persecuted them for generations, when the Egyptians tried to chase them through on dry land, God brought the waters back over them and drowned them. He brought his judgment on them. And the very next thing that happens back in Exodus is that after they've come through and they've been saved, the Egyptians have just been smashed, God's people stand by the sea and sing the song of Moses. There's a lot of alarm bells that are ringing if you're familiar with that. Exodus 15 It says, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. You can imagine these persecuted people have been enslaved for 400 years, crying out in joy to God who's just saved them. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. God's people praise him because he saved them from their persecutors and he's brought his just judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So when John sees this vision in Revelation 15, Can you see how it's drawing on the Old Testament there? God's people, who are those who have been victorious over the beast and its image, which again, it's helpful if you go back into the podcast to get more detail here in Revelation 13. uh, We look at the beast and that kind of thing. But for John's original readers, it would be calling to, to mind Rome, who had been persecuting them, this vicious beast. God's people are standing beside the Red Sea. And what do they do? They sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. It's calling back to the song of Moses, but it's also a new song of victory. Because this is also the song of the Lamb, referring to Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. So John's vision here isn't about literal world events in the distant future. It's a picture of a second exodus. That just as God delivered his people from the Egyptians led by Moses all that time ago, so now God has delivered his people from their enemies led by Jesus. Just as God has saved his people from slavery to Egypt, so now God has saved his people from slavery to Satan, sin and death. And just as it was the blood of the Passover lamb back in Exodus that saved the Israelites from having to face God's judgment, it was the blood of the lamb that took the judgment in their place. So now it is the blood of Jesus, the lamb that was slain, that saves God's people from facing the judgment for their sin. It's a new exodus. In fact, the first exodus was only a picture of the greater salvation that God would carry out through Jesus. And so that's, that's the image, the big picture that should shape the way that we see Revelation 15 to 16. And it's not an image that is brought up and then quickly dropped and ignored. No, it's carried all the way through Revelation 15 to 16. 
Because what's Revelation 15, 16 all about? It pictures seven bowls of God's wrath that are also called seven plagues. Now, once again, that is strong Exodus imagery. Because back in Exodus, there were 10 plagues that God brought on Egypt. The frogs, the water turned to blood, the boils and sores, the hails, the darkness, and so on. So with that picture in mind, if you've got uh, your Bibles with me, uh, open there, have a look with me at Revelation 16, where we see how these plagues form the background for this vision of God's judgment. Revelation 16, verses 1 to 4. Uh, So John has seen things, now he's hearing. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now, is this saying that at some point in the future, angels are are literally going to have these huge golden bowls, such that if you look up into the sky, you're going to see them pouring stuff out onto the earth? Well, no, don't jump to a literal fulfillment in these things that are actually going to happen one by one in a literal way. This is saying that just as God brought his plagues of judgment on the Egyptians, so God will one day too bring his just judgment on all who oppose him now as well. It's a picture of God's coming judgment, which make no mistake, God's coming judgment is very real. It's not just a metaphor. The bowls are metaphorical descriptions of a very real judgment that is coming. Now, that's the big picture, um, and we don't have time to go into every little detail and each verse by verse. But let's zero in on one section that seems confusing at first. But again, we'll try to model seeing how that big picture helps understand what it's pointing to. So have a look in your Bibles with me at verses 12 to 16, where we see the sixth bowl of God's wrath. This one isn't in your handout. So either have a look on your phone or Bible, or you'll see it up on the PowerPoint. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Jesus suddenly speaks out in the midst of this vision. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to that place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. Okay, so there's your sixth bowl. Um, And remember, you've got two options when you see these confusing things that are being described. You could jump to literal events or you could jump to the Old Testament. So think, for example, about this confusing idea of three impure spirits that look like frogs, like what on earth is going on here? Well, check out this interpretation uh, that I found on the internet, the source of all wisdom when it comes to end time prophecies. Listen carefully. This is what's occurring today. Like frogs, messengers are carrying messages from the mouth of the dragon. 
He goes on then where it's highlighted, we must understand that unfortunately in the United States of America today, we're using the Secretary of State to this end when the Secretary moves from nation to nation like a frog. The phrase like frogs is about their movements. Apostle John was able to see statespersons moving in airplanes and helicopters from one kingdom to another kingdom. Hop, hop, as it were. And then he goes on to talk about sanctions in Iran, North Korea, and direct fulfillments of this prophecy. Now, that's all very tempting, but no, I don't think that's what's going on. I'm just going to take a stab at it. Don't jump to literal world events. Think of the Old Testament background. Now, let me ask you, can anyone think of a time where frogs are mentioned in the Old Testament? one of the plagues in Egypt. Absolutely. And if you go back then, if you read it, uh, just as uh, uh, one of the things that happens with some of the plagues is that Pharaoh's magicians are actually able to replicate some of the plagues by their own deceptive arts. And so they're deceiving people. And this here, we're actually told um, what, what these frogs represent. They are demonic spirits that perform signs to deceive people. To deceive people and gather them in opposition against God. So if you're looking for this vision to be fulfilled, don't look for literal frogmen walking around. Don't look for people hopping from nation to nation. The way we see this fulfilled is all the ways that Satan and his forces of darkness are at work in this present age, blinding people to the, to the gospel and making them hostile to God and his people. And that is something that is really happening demonic spirits that deceive people and make them oppose God. That is happening in this world right now. And it's not just in the secretaries of state and the halls of power. It's in our universities and our workplaces as well. Satan loves nothing more than to deceive people and blind them against God and turn them against God. Now, another thing to point out from these verses, notice verse 15, the way uh, suddenly Jesus interjects and comes here and speaks. And that language of coming like a thief uh, resonates with a lot of what Jesus says in other parts of the Gospels. Jesus saying that a thief doesn't announce in advance when he's going to try to break into your house. That's the whole point of the language of coming like a thief. So Jesus is going to arrive when no one expects it. And and that should point out the folly and and almost the irony of using passages like this to try to predict when Jesus is going to come again. If you see someone read the Bible in a way that they're trying to predict exact dates, they're using the Bible in a way that directly contradicts what Jesus himself said about his coming. No one's going to expect it. Don't look at Revelation or any other book of the Bible and think, okay, now strap on your seatbelt time or this time is more lower prophetic activity so we can relax. No, Jesus says, always be ready. Stay awake. Be ready so that I could come back at any moment. Don't be shamefully exposed. Keep trusting in me. Don't think, oh, I can't be bothered to look into Jesus now. I'll do that in 10 years time uh, when I maybe have more time. He could come back tomorrow. Don't think, oh, I'm leaving this sin unchecked. I don't don't need to worry about it. I'll, I'll do that later in my life when I've got more time to focus on it. Jesus, be ready. Trust in me now. Look to me now. Lean on me now. Because I could come back at any moment. So that's the big picture of Revelation 15 to 16. And if you were to try to sum up the fundamental message of these two chapters, what they're driving at, what they're ultimately saying, um, well, I think I'd try to sum it up something like this. And this is a really important thing to try to do, I think, with Revelation. It's so easy to get so um, worked up in the tiny details that you miss the actual big picture of what uh, parts of Revelation are saying. 
Summary of Revelation 15 to 16. Just as God saved his people Israel and judged those who oppressed them at the first exodus, so too through Jesus, God will bring ultimate salvation for his people and judgment on those who oppress them. Now, some of that judgment will come in this present age when totalitarian regimes that persecute Christians are toppled, such as when Rome fell, which we're going to look at more next week in Revelation 17 to 18. But the rest of that judgment will come at the end of the age when God decisively pours out his wrath on all who have done evil. But however much of that judgment happens now in this age and however much happens at the end, can you see how that would be an encouragement to the Christians who first received this letter? Can you see how it would be an encouragement to remind them that God hasn't forgotten them? When everything looked bleak, They had no power. They had no influence. And they're at the mercy of those around them. Can you see how how Revelation 15, 16, when they seen in the light of all that God has done in the Old Testament, how it would strengthen them to keep trusting in the Lamb of God who was slain for their sins, despite the suffering they were facing. This vision lifts their eyes and ours to the day when they and we and all who have put our trust in Jesus will sing the song of the Lamb, The words of Revelation 15, great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God's righteous acts have been revealed in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. And in Jesus' return, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, we will look and we will see that it is just and right and good. You know, one of the confronting things about these two chapters is they talk a lot about God's wrath. That word comes up a lot. His wrath, his anger. And sometimes we don't like hearing about that. We want to focus on God's love. We might even think that God's love and God's wrath are somehow incompatible with each other. But the reality is, in a world filled with evil and injustice, it is precisely God's love that leads to his wrath. His love for those who are oppressed leads to anger at those who oppress them. How many people in recent weeks have seen images of Ukrainian children killed by senseless bombing and have not been moved to anger? of the bodies of women and children found mutilated in basements in butcher. People are appalled when they see that, and rightly so. Not because they're uncaring or unloving, but precisely because they do care. And I'm guessing that the closer you are to that situation, the more anger and injustice you feel. For some of us, we we may not even be thinking about that stuff. It's not on the radar. But for those of us who might have Ukrainian family, or think of those who live there, they would be feeling far more indignation at what's going on, wouldn't they? The more you love those who are mistreated, the more anger you will feel when they are wronged. And God's righteous anger flows from his unbounded love. And if God's 
And so seeing that God's wrath and his love are connected is so important for us. But, but also to see that even as this passage talks about God's wrath, we need to remember that God doesn't want people to have to face his wrath, which is why he provided a Passover lamb, Jesus, who took the wrath of God in our place so that by his blood we can be saved. You know, sometimes we don't like talking about God's wrath because it sounds unhinged, sounds vengeful or cruel. We think of people who are blind with rage and out of control. And we're right to, be, to, be, to think that that's not a good thing. But God's wrath is not like that. God is not angry like we are angry. Time and time again in Revelation 15 to 16, we see that God's wrath is perfectly measured. Not out of control, not blind with rage, but it's perfectly just and perfectly proportionate. After that symbolic pictures of waters turning to blood from the second and third plagues, which again harkens back to uh, Exodus imagery, look at what it says in Revelation 15, 5 to 7. Look at the way it emphasizes how the punishment fits the crime. Think of these people who are being persecuted. It says, Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shared the blood of your holy people and your prophets. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. It's striking. Even the inanimate objects cry out as they see the goodness and the justness and the rightness of God's judgment. The punishment fits the crime. We might feel uncomfortable with the idea of God's final judgment, but what the picture that the Bible gives us is that when we see God's very real and serious wrath poured out and justice done, no one's going to look at that and say, whoa, calm down, God, don't overreact. No. We're going to see true and perfect justice. And deep down, that is something that every human longs for, for every wrong to be made right. Now, this was an important reminder for John's first readers, and it's an important reminder for us too, isn't it? By God's grace, we aren't experiencing the kind of persecution they were facing as we live here in Australia. But many of us have faced or will face, we don't know what the future will hold, suffering at the hands of those who do evil. And the truths of this passage remind us to stand firm in Jesus and look forward to the day when God will make things right. It's a comfort to any here today who are putting their trust in Jesus. And if you're here today and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, we're so glad that you're here and that you're open to to thinking about Jesus and exploring. And as you see a passage like this, it might seem confronting. But again, see this as a picture of God's love. He doesn't want you to have to face his wrath. So he's provided Jesus as a lamb to take the sins in your place. And he's provided passages like this to warn you ahead of time so that you can turn to Jesus before it's too late. In Revelation 16 verse 9, those who experience God's wrath refuse to repent and glorify God. And again in verse 11, they refuse to repent of their sinful ways. So often the longer we wait and the more we actually experience the judgment that we deserve, it's only going to harden us further. So don't delay. Turn to Jesus now and receive the free gift of salvation. Jesus is calling people from every nation to come be part of his people, 
to be among those who are victorious on that final day through the blood of the Lamb. And on that day, we will sing, Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed.